Section 11 of Volume 1 of Symbolism by Johann Adam Moeller, translated by James Burton Robertson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 1. The Doctrinal Differences Among Catholics, Lutherans, and the Reformed. Part 1. Difference in Doctrine Respecting the Primitive State of Man and the Origin of Evil. Subheading 1. Primitive State of Man According to the Catholic Doctrine In proportion as we consider the history of mankind, or even of individual man, from the Catholic or the Protestant point of view, very different conclusions will in part be formed respecting our common progenitor, conclusions which will affect the destinies of his whole race, even to their passage into the next life, and even the first degrees of that life take a very different form according as we regard them in the light either of Catholic or of Protestant doctrine. The parties, indeed, originally were not conscious of the full extent of their divisions. For ecclesiastical, like political, revolutions are not conducted according to preconcerted, fully completed system. But, on the contrary, their fundamental principles are wont to be consistently unfolded only in and by practical life and their heterogeneous parts, to be thereby only gradually transformed. Hence, at the commencement of the ecclesiastical revolution of the 16th century, reflection was not immediately directed towards the origin of our kind, nor even to its passage into eternity. For a more minute explanation of these articles of doctrine appeared in part to possess but a very subordinate interest, and many points seemed only brought forward to fill up the breaches in the general system of belief. The great contest which now engages our attention had rather its rise in the inmost and deepest center of human history, as it turned upon the mode whereby fallen man can regain fellowship with Christ and become a partaker of the fruits of redemption. But from this center, the opposition spread backward and forward and reached the two terms of human history which were necessarily viewed in accordance with the changes introduced in the central point. The more consistently a system is carried out, and the more harmoniously it is framed, the more will any modification in its fundamental principle shake all its parts. Whoever, therefore, in its center assailed Catholicism, whose doctrines are all most intimately intertwined, was forced by degrees to attack many other points. Also, whose connection with those first combated, was, in the beginning, scarcely imagined. We could now have started from the real center of all these disputes, and have shown how all doctrines have been seized and drawn into its circle. And undoubtedly the commencement of our work would have much more excited the interest of the reader, had we immediately placed him in the midst of the contest, and enabled him to survey the entire field which the battle commands. But we conceive that the controverted doctrines must be stated in a simpler and more intelligible manner when we pursue the contrary course and by following the clue presented by the natural progress of human history bring under notice these doctrinal differences. Hence, we begin with the original state of man, speak next of his fall and the consequences thereof, and then enter on the very central ground of the controversy as we proceed to consider the doctrine of the restoration of man from his fall through Jesus Christ. We shall afterwards point out the influence of the conflicting doctrine, respecting the origin and nature of the internal life of those united with Christ, 
on their external union and communion with each other, and thus be led to enlarge on the theory and essence of this outward communion according to the views of the different confessions, and we shall conclude with the passage of individuals from this communion existing on earth to that of the next world, as well as with the lasting mutual intercourse between the two. The first point, accordingly, which will engage our attention is the primitive state of man. Fallen man as such is able, in no other wise, save by the teaching of divine revelation, to attain to the true and pure knowledge of his original condition. For it was a portion of the destiny of man, when alienated from his God, to be likewise alienated from himself, and to know with certainty neither what he originally was, nor what he became. In determining his original state, we must especially direct our view to the renewal of the fallen creature in Christ Jesus. Because as regeneration consists in the re-establishment of our primeval condition, and this transformation and renewal is only the primitive creation restored, the insight into what Christ hath given us back affords us the desired knowledge of what in the origin was imparted to us. This course has been at all times and by all parties pursued when the original condition of man was to be traced. As regards the Catholic dogma, this embraces the whole spiritual as well as the corporal existence of the paradisiac man, extending not only to his preeminent endowments of soul and body, but to those gifts which he possessed in common with all men, so far at least as the doctrinal controversies of the 16th century required a special explanation on this latter point. Accordingly, in the higher portion of his nature, he is described as the image of God, that is to say, as a spiritual being endowed with freedom, capable of knowing and loving God, and of viewing everything in him. As Adam had this divine similitude in common with the whole human race, the distinction which he enjoyed herein consisted in his being what the simple expression of the Council of Trent denominates, just and holy. In other words, completely acceptable to God. For, as the school says, in language, however, not quite expressive enough, quote, his inferior faculties of soul and bodily impulses acted unresistingly under the guidance of his reason, and therefore everything in him was in obedience to reason, as his reason was in obedience to God, unquote. And, accordingly, he lived in blessed harmony with himself and with his Maker. The action of the faculties and impulses of the body was in perfect accord with a reason devoted to God and shunned all conflict with it. It was, moreover, coupled with the great gift of immortality, even in man's earthly part, as well as with an exemption from all the evils and all the maladies which are now the ordinary preludes to death. The ideal moral state in which Adam existed in paradise, the theologians of antiquity knew by the name of, quote, original justice, unquote, on the notion and nature whereof it will be proper to make some other remarks, partly of a historical kind, in order to explain the opposition which, in this article of doctrine, the Catholic Church has had to encounter from the Protestants. The essential and universal interest of the Christian religion in determining the original condition of our common progenitor is by the above-stated brief doctrine of the Church amply satisfied. Herein consists the interest, 
on one hand to guard against evil in the world being attributed to a divine cause, and the dogma of the supreme holiness of God, the creator of the world, being disfigured. And on the other hand, to establish on a solid basis the principle of a totally unmerited redemption from the fall. That practical fundamental doctrine of Christianity, by most earnestly inculcating that God had endowed the first man with the noblest gifts, and that thus it was only through his own deep self-guiltiness he fell. Upon both points, however, there exist more stringent and by no means superfluous definitions of the church. Theologians, likewise, taking as their standard the ecclesiastical doctrine, clearly based as it is on scripture and tradition, and following certain hints which particular passages of holy writ and some dogmas appear to furnish, having endeavored to fathom more deeply the nature of original justice, and the church has viewed with pleasure the attention and love bestowed on the consideration of the holy work, and permitted, within the determined limits which revelation itself has marked out, the freest scope to speculation. When the church attributes to Adam in his original state holiness and justice, she by no means merely means that he was unpolluted with any alloy adverse to God, or contrary to his natural impulse and bearing to God, but, what is far more, that he stood in the most interior and the closest communion with his Maker. Now, it is a universal truth, holding good of all, even the highest orders and circles of intellectual creatures, that such a relation to God, as that of the paradisiac men, is nowise to be attained and upheld by natural powers that consequently a special condescension of the Almighty is required thereto, in short, that no finite being is holy, save by the holy and sanctifying spirit, that no finite being can exist in a living moral communion with the Deity, save by the communion of the self-same Holy Spirit. This relation of Adam to God, as it exalted him above human nature, and made him participate in that of God, is hence termed, as indeed such a denomination is involved in the very idea of such an exaltation, a supernatural gift of divine grace, superadded to the endowments of nature. Moreover, this more minute explanation of the dogma concerning the original holiness and justice of Adam is not merely a private opinion of theologians, but an integral part of that dogma, and hence itself a dogma. The following observation will not perhaps appear unimportant. So often as from a mere philosophical point of view, we mean to say, so often as without regard to, or knowledge of, revealed truth, the relation of the human spirit to God hath been more deeply investigated. Men have seen themselves forced to the adoption of the homalcia, or quality of essence between the divine and the human nature. In other words, to embrace pantheism, and with it, the most arrogant deification of man. Now, on the other hand, the doctrinal system of the Catholic Church obviates the objections of pantheism, and while filled with the spirit of humility, satisfies those cravings after a more profound science, which profane pantheistic philosophy vainly endeavors to supply, is apparent from what has been above stated. What man, as a creature, by the energy of his own nature, abandons to itself, was unable to attain, is conferred on him as a grace from his Creator. So exceedingly great is the goodness and love of God. 
the blessing above described, which knit the bonds of an exalted, holy, and happy communion between God and the paradisiac man, is founded on the supposition that a struggle would, by degrees, have naturally arisen between the sensual and spiritual nature of man, characterized by many theologians as that power whereby the sensual and supersensual parts of Adam were maintained in undisturbed harmony. The same divines necessarily suppose that on Adam the supernatural gifts were bestowed simultaneously with his natural endowments, that is to say, that both were conferred at the moment of his creation. Other theologians, on the other hand, distinguishing undoubtedly between justice and holiness, prefer the opinion that Adam was created as a sound, pure, unpolluted nature, with the harmonious relation of all his parts, and that he was favored with the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit and blessed communion with God at a later period only, to wit, when he had prepared for its reception, and by his own efforts had rendered himself worthy of its participation. This latter opinion possesses the advantage of more accurately distinguishing between the two orders of nature and grace, and is moreover recommended by the fact that what nature is in itself, and what it is enabled to accomplish of itself, is pointed out with great clearness that the spiritual nature of man, as being in its essence the image of God, hath the faculty and the aptitude to know and to love him, nay that, to a certain extent, it is of itself really capable of loving him, and that the desire after the full union with the deity is a want inherent in his very nature, are truths very well pointed out in this theory. Thus the natural and necessary points of contact for the higher communications of grace, are here very finely brought out. The same opinion also distinguishes Adam's original justice from his internal sanctity and acceptance before God, considering the former to be the attribute of pure nature, as it came from the hand of the Creator, the latter to be only the gift of supernatural grace. The advocates of this opinion are thus in a condition successfully to prove that it was not the creation as such which gave occasion to any incongruity in the relation of man to God, any interruption of the former's freedom, but that every such incongruity, every such disturbance, had its rise only in the abuse of freedom. Further, this theory significantly implies that without any antagonism of evil, man could yet have attained to the consciousness of his own nature and the wants extending beyond it as well as the manifestations of divine favor and grace, a doctrine which is of the highest importance. Lastly, the possible condition of man after his fall and the course of his conversion and regeneration are here prefigured. Moreover, both these opinions regard the justice and sanctity of Adam as accidental qualities. The Council of Trent has not pronounced itself either for or against either of them, but has employed such expressions that both may coexist within the pale of the church. The first declaration of the council regarding our great progenitor was couched in the following terms, quote, The justice and sanctity wherein he, Adam, was created, unquote, Grandidus. This form was afterwards and so far modified that, instead of the word, quote-unquote, created, that of, quote-unquote, established, Constitutus was selected. 
End of section 11.